President Washington was initially delicate in his response. In mid-September, he issued a pronouncement. Certain violent and unwarrantable proceedings threatened the good order, he announced. They were of a nature dangerous to the very being of a government, because everyone must abide by the rule of law for government to stand. Though he vaguely warned of coercive measures if they did not desist, he did not actually do much. He instead contented himself with a warning. Now therefore I, George Washington, President of the United States, do by these presents most earnestly admonish and exhort all persons whom it may concern to refrain and desist from all unlawful combinations and proceedings. That hardly had the desired effect. The impasse had lasted through the formation of the Democratic-Republican societies in 1793 and into early spring 1794, as Jefferson and Madison began party organizing in earnest. Finally, in summer 1794, a federal marshal showed up with orders for tax-avoiding distillers to appear in federal court. In response, an armed mob burned an excise inspector's home, beat back federal troops, and began preparations to seize a federal garrison that could arm the region. They eventually abandoned this plan. The Whiskey Rebellion, as historians now call this uprising, further inflamed the growing partisan animosity. During the whole period, Washington still peppered his statements with admonitions toward the careful cultivation of harmony and unprejudiced coolness in government. He and his advisers distrusted the Democratic-Republican societies as expressions of factional politics bent on undermining consensual government. But the Whiskey Rebellion added to the administration's alarm by suggesting the revolutionary tendency of the Democratic-Republican movement. I consider this insurrection as the first formidable fruit of the Democratic societies, Washington wrote to an ally. He believed that factious men had created the societies primarily to sow the seeds of jealousy and distrust among the people of the government by destroying all confidence in the administration of it. So the first order of business was to crush the rebellion. In August he called up an army of 13,000 men from state militias and volunteers, a force roughly the size of the Continental Army during the American Revolution. Once it was assembled, he and Hamilton went with the army to western Pennsylvania, where the rebels simply melted away. In the end, the authorities rounded up a few ringleaders, but the point was mostly symbolic, a weak end to what many feared could have become a powerful challenge to the federal government. But that did not mean that the Whiskey Rebellion was unimportant. The efflorescence of popular agitation actually brought the parties into clear relief, It showed that they disagreed about more than simply economic policy. They disagreed about the nature of governance and the prerogative of the people. Washington returned to the insurrection during his annual message to Congress in November, when he explained what he saw as the larger issue. His objection was not to the mob in western Pennsylvania, he said, but to certain self-created societies, the Democratic-Republican societies, who had called themselves into existence in order to oppose a duly elected Republican government. Washington believed that the societies violated the true principles of Republican government and liberty, which depended fundamentally on representation, not populist agitation. That was the design of the Constitution and, he seemed to suggest, 
the Democratic-Republican societies were in constitutional violation. Madison was stunned at what seemed a clearly partisan message from Washington, but he continued to see Washington as above parties, and instead blamed Hamilton for the partisan rebuke. The game was, Madison explained to James Monroe, to connect the Democratic societies with the odium of insurrection, to connect the Republicans in Congress with those societies, to put the President ostensibly at the head of the other party, in opposition to both. He lamented what he saw as Washington's naivete. By listening to Hamilton, Washington had committed the greatest error of his political life.